hello and welcome to season of the bitch the podcast that knows abolition can't wait Today we have Zoe, Kellen, and Laura. Today, as you probably have guessed, we're going to be talking about abolition, what it is, and how we can organize to achieve it. We also are starting an abolition and anti-racist reading group through our Patreon, which is going to be Sunday evenings at 7 EST, um, which is starting today as of the day we are recording this, but it will be continuing as you're hearing this. So yeah, every Sunday, 7 p.m. EST, join our Patreon. You can come learn with us. It'll be fun. But today we have some amazing guests joining us from the team that created the 8-2 Abolition Campaign. Welcome. 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 Hi. 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 <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Do you, y'all want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Rachel Kuo. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm an organizer, designer, and a scholar of race, tech, and social movements. I'm also a co-founder of the Asian American Feminist Collective, where I like to make zines. Nice. You like to make what? Zines. Zines. Oh, zines. I thought you said make meat, and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, interesting, but okay. No, zines, yes. Perfect. Zines are awesome. We love it. Zines are amazing. It would be cool if you made meat, too. Either way, we love it. I'm sorry. I'm, like, cackling. Um, (laughs) I'm Reyna Sultan, and I also use she, her pronouns. I am a freelance journalist and a baby organizer, (laughs) and um, I am obsessed with Rachel and Layla. Yes. Aw, the feeling is mutual. Um, Hi, y'all. I'm Layla Raven. I also use she, her pronouns. And um, I'm a mom. I'm an organizer. um, And I've been organizing over the past year or so with Decrim New York. And and before that, had helped to start Decrim Now DC, um, back in DC, to decriminalize sex work in both cities. Um, And have just been organizing for a long time at the intersection of like gendered violence, state violence, and poverty. Awesome. Thanks so much to all of y'all for for joining us today. Yeah, we're so excited about this. Um, Yeah, so to add a little context for what we're discussing here, um, the 8 to Abolition campaign was born as a response to 8 Can't Wait. So y'all may have seen that kind of going around on Instagram. It was made up of eight different points, each having to do with general police reform, mostly banning bad behavior. This spread really rapidly, like, no surprise, because it was so fucking lib. (laughs) And the design was good, so, like, I feel like it just, like, kind of caught, like, wildfire. Um, And uh, various media outlets started reporting on reform, but uh, this hits a little different. Um, It was met with anger from activists and writers, and ultimately ate to abolition a different set of eight principles um, where abolition instead of incremental change and reform of police take center stage. So, sorry, that was written weirdly. But uh, the eight to, I want to be clear that the eight to, eight can't wait, like the reform one was met with anger by uh, activists and abolitionists. Um, So this was kind of in response to that. Um, To quickly read them out, the eight are defund police, demilitarize communities, remove police from schools, 
free people from jails and prisons, repeal laws that criminalize survival, invest in community self-governance, provide safe housing for everyone, and invest in care, not cops. So that was a great little intro, Laura. Thank you for taking that on. Um, I wanted to start out our conversation with the guests by asking a pretty basic question just to make sure that our audience is on the same page as all of us when we're talking today. Um, Can you all explain what we mean when we say abolition? Um, Yeah, so we mean no cops, no prisons, no jails, no ICE, no immigrant, uh, immigrant detention centers, and no involuntary commitment in nursing homes or psychiatric institutions. So we believe in a world where whole communities instead can be equipped to keep each other safe and care for each other. And I would add that like I think people are like, especially on the internet, not quite understanding the scope of abolition. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ruthie Wilson Gilmore puts it best as she usually does. Um, and she says that abolition requires that we change one thing which is everything. Um, And I think that it's hard to grasp that because it requires us to have a lot more imagination. But I think it's really important for us to look at it as not just police and prisons, but it's a whole change of the world, honestly. Yeah, and I think what I would also add to that is like when we think about changing the world, so abolition as the end of a world of police and prisons, but really thinking about building up a new world, right? And so we often talk about abolition as both a vision and also a practice. So whether that's like on the micro scale of how we're really even thinking about how we're relating to one another, holding each other accountable to the larger scales of building up infrastructures of care, safety, and support. Um, And so when we think about the destruction of extractive uh, systems like police and prisons, it's also necessitating the destruction of like larger things too, right? Like anti-capitalism, like destroying capitalism, destroying white supremacy, systems of imperialism and all of that. So abolition, like as this vision and practice of how we get to this different kind of world. That is like very, very well said all across the board. Um, Yeah, I think it's also important to understand that each of these points, you know, that we read out, defunding the police, demilitarizing communities, have rippling effects into other parts of public policy. When you talk about freeing people from prisons, you're also saying end prison slave labor and the prison industry. Um, you know, and what we mean by that is like the ways in which corporations are so embedded into the fabric of our carceral state. Um, this actually has rippling economic effects because every system in this country is at its core racist. And when we end a racist structure, it touches a lot of other things. Um, if you are not limited to just eight, uh, would you include anything else in the list? Or, and if so, what, what else would you include? I would say that like 12 hours of our 24 hour putting this together spree was us like putting things in and then taking them out and then putting them back in and then taking them out again because there's so much that we could add. Um, If I personally could add something to this list without scaring people, I would say abolish the military or abolish Mm. the entire United States. Yes. Yes. Abolish abolish the, 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 uh, idea of borders because it's insane and built on like lineage of colonialism and imperialism and now globalized capitalism. But yes. Okay. Continue. (laughs) 
so yeah I accidentally like misspoke the other day I think I was talking to Rachel and I was like abolish everything (laughs) (laughs) um but like not false yeah (laughs) yeah 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 just to build on to that um like we chose those eight categories and the specific policies listed under them because they're actions that local legislators can take immediately to move Mm. us closer to a world without policing. But like Raina said, the list can be endless, really. Um, And for me, the most important part is that we're living it, that we're practicing abolition in our everyday lives and in our interpersonal relationships, like Rachel was saying earlier. Um, And I feel like over the past few days, as more and more survivors are starting to speak out about their experiences with abuse and gendered violence in movement spaces, um, we're seeing that a lot, like for a lot of folks, their values are just not lining up with their actions. So I probably would have added a whole category on building safety from gendered violence and interpersonal violence, uh, violence, but um, I think we did build those pieces into the other existing categories, like we included freeing criminalized survivors from mm-hmm. the ball and under like care not cops we talked about um investing in community-based solutions to addressing gendered violence like public school or education on building healthier relationships um and under housing we built in alternative housing options for people who are navigating abuse which is one of the primary needs for um survivors of of family violence um so yeah so I think the list is endless um but yeah gendered violence I think is a is a big priority for me yeah I would I would even add to that that um universal health care plays a huge role in gendered violence as well um and just like having that tied to employment and employment being so low right now just like people feeling really stuck uh, if they have chronic illness or anything like that and like how that can lead people to take drastic measures that might be um, construed by the state as criminal activity. I just want to echo everything that everyone else (laughs) says and co-sign it. Um, One of the things that we do talk about in Eat to Abolition, right, is that we know abolition is being more transformative than just eight points. Mm. And I think in one way too, it's like thinking about the ways that even amongst the eight that they go across each other, right? Like, so defunding police is not a separate point from investing in care, not cops, right? And so really thinking about how these different things are intimately linked together. So it's not like we're just replacing police by making social workers, educators, et cetera, take the role of police. But as we're thinking about defunding, like we're also thinking about how are we building up these other systems simultaneously? Um, And we talk about it a little bit in the point of like removing cops from schools, but like thinking about like how we also need to place pressure and demands on other departments to rethink their infrastructures, right? Like that Mm -hmm. we want mental health services that are non-coercive and those changes need to happen. Um, Like also like have that same, like need to happen the same way, like as we're talking about dismantling police, right? Like, so there's systems that need to change, right? Like if we're talking about like putting funds into social benefits, like we really need to get rid of the punitive logics of social controls that are in our social service systems, right? Like how welfare is being um, distributed right now. So I think like that's something that I just wanna highlight and lift up. And I think kind of going off of what Rena was saying earlier about like the kind of abolishing of borders, really thinking about how militarism in the US war machine is something that really undergirds um, our policing systems now. And so really thinking about like, how are we addressing um, addressing the, like how are we getting rid of the US military as much as we're talking about abolition? 
Um, and another thing that we have added to the eight site abolition platform so far, like due to feedback um, and being in conversation with different people is really being upfront and explicit about how the US is a settler colonial state, right? And so the reservation systems where uh, native people were displaced from sacred homelands, like were early carceral technologies, right? Like to enclose people like in space and removing them from their homes. And so really thinking about decolonization as part of the project of abolition as well. Um, and I guess we also, I feel like we're gonna quote Ruth Wilson Gilmore a lot. <laughs> in this um, and I think maybe something that she's really pushed me to think about and that like to highlight if we could add more things, right? Like where in a recent interview, she talks about abolition having to be green and red. And so really thinking about environmental justice as well as like abolition as international. So like those two things is something that I'm really marinating on from her. Okay, I have one more thing to say because I, I can't even remember if it was Layla or Rachel, but it reminded me, I think something that's really important that I wish we could have touched on a little bit more is how we can live the practices and ideas of abolition in our daily lives, like in interpersonal relationships. Um, I think that a lot of us have like a cop in our heads and we oh, kind of like, yeah, like we have to abolish that too. Yes. And we have to understand that harm happens even if you're not a quote unquote bad person. And you need to understand that the way that you rectify harm that you've done or that you hold others who've harmed you accountable should also not mimic the carceral state. Like, and that can just be between friendships, relationships, partners, parents, or whatever it is. But I think a lot of us are looking at these huge systems when it also is exhibited in our personal relationships. Yeah, yeah, I just got chills. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for saying that, Raina. I really feel like this is um, this is the most important part, and that work has it, it's going to be ongoing. It has to be happening simultaneously with the uprisings, and even in a post-revolutionary world, I think we'll be constantly working to align our actions with our values, um, because you know the carceral state seeps into every aspect of our lives, even the whole idea of like. Uh, punishment for young children, like timeouts and spanking. That's so, it's so common and so normalized in our culture. Um, and we have to learn how to envision a different concept of justice. And I think that's also coming up a lot um, in terms of like, you know, what do we do with the killer cops? Um, so many people are calling for the incarceration and prosecution of killer cops. Um, and I think we need to be talking and thinking more about what else could justice look like and, and could justice be, you know, um, defunding police, firing cops who have used excessive force um, like we built into the platform um, and building a world where, you know, black women, girls, black trans folks uh, and gender nonconforming folks have access to everything they need to survive and to be safe. And yeah. I'm not sure if anybody saw, I think it was an article from today, but like people, a lot of people have like an extreme emotional reaction, obviously, when you say that we're not calling for killer cops to go to prison because mm. like on an emotional level, you want to see these people punished and that's really natural. And it's something that we have to fight against inside of us. Like it's an uncomfortable thing. Um, but I was just reading that Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd, is in prison or jail right now and 
um, people are getting in trouble for like this, like the um, prison guards are getting in trouble for sharing their cell phones with him. Or like <sighs> there were several cops who are, I guess they're not cops, the prison guards, um, which are kind of cops. cops. Um, <laughs> um, they filed a complaint because they weren't allowed to guard his cell 24 seven. Like oh it's not the justice people think it is. Yeah. And I, I really struggle to get this across to people because I think we get this false sense of security when we see somebody actually punished for something they've done because they think, oh, okay, great. They're um, fired, they got arrested, and now we can all like live in peace and harmony, which is not what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Angela Davis talks a lot about the imagination that it requires to envision a world beyond prisons and police because... It truly does in the sense that you need to think outside of what has societally been embedded into the fabric of American culture. And so it's not necessarily our fault that we have to unlearn all this, but we do need to unlearn all of it. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question that built on Laura's question about what you might add, you know, if you had more space. Um, And that's about the the way that capitalism and the carceral state are entwined because it seems like capitalism as it functions today is completely reliant on carceral institutions to make it work so i'm wondering is it possible to abolish the police without also abolishing capitalism or is this this eight to abolition plan kind of a plan to abolish capitalism or begin that work as well Yeah, I think um, all of these struggles, you know, like we were talking about all of the different ways that we are oppressed, that it's interlocking and we have to be struggling on all of these fronts at the same time. Um, Yeah. I also think, again, it was Angela Davis again. (laughs) Um, I think that on a recent webinar, she was saying like abolition is anti-capitalism is feminism. Like they all have to be connected because these struggles are so connected. But I do want to say that a lot of the eight that we put in to eight to abolition can be done tomorrow if local municipalities did decide to do that. I don't think personally that full abolition would happen if we still had capitalism, but we can put in place some of these abolitionist reforms as we work to abolish all of the systems that we already talked about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think... um one of the things to think about, like the ways that capitalism really undergirds the prison industrial complex, right? And so one of the campaigns that I've been thinking about, so in New York City, Mayor Dil, uh, Bill de Blasio proposed to build these new jails. And that was like this whole like $11 billion contract, right? Between the city government, foundations and like real estate development. So it's <laughs> right. like people are making a ton of money like off of like the expansion of prisons, like the expansion of police. And so really thinking about the ways that capitalism is undergirding things, right? Like you can think about like the phone companies like Securus and Global Telelink that like monopolize like how people who are incarcerated can even talk to their loved ones and like charging them at super high rates. And lawyers. Yeah. Loved ones and lawyers, they can't have access to their lawyers because they can't even afford to have those phone calls. Exactly. And 
and like that companies that are more invested in their bottom line than there are right like in the basic right to communicate um, and to be in touch with people that you love and that you need and right like if we think about like the tech industry right now there's so much like that software companies data sharing like agreements like are also profiting off of um, contracts like with police and prisons as well and so also when of our favorite people to cite, Miriam Kaba, like definitely like has this very explicit quote where she's like, we're not gonna abolish the police if we don't abolish capitalism. Yeah. So very much like that, like those two things are very much intertwined and co-signing Reina though, that it does seem really big to get rid of the system that so much of us um, are very much entangled in, but at the same time, there are the kinds of ways that we can campaign, right? Like to start breaking these contracts to like make moves to begin that process now. Right, like non-reformist reforms. We're talking about things that, that while like you said, they're possible to for legislatures to accomplish tomorrow, they're also things that, that make abolition, like true actual abolition um, more feasible um, you know, actually accomplishable. Uh, it's really, really important. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like not making these systems like quote unquote less harmful, but like Again. the kind of what you talked about, like non-reformist reform. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Well, one of the reasons that we really wanted to have y'all on is because you obviously put a lot of thought into like how to make these ideas succinct and accessible which is what we're trying to do here. Um, but you talked about this a little bit with like how many things you like brought in and out and all of that, but can you talk a little more about like what the process was like for developing this? Yeah, well, it started with a tweet. So Mon <laughs> tweeted out just who wants to create an eight to abolition or an abolitionist version of the eight can't wait campaign. Um, and then you know, like Raina said, we all really pulled it together in just about 24 hours. Um, wow. Yeah, but many of us <laughs> have been involved in or touched by the grassroots movements that have been working for years to advocate for the policies and the ideas that we put forward. And like we wrote on the website, um, we were building off of decades of work by black feminist thought leaders like Angela Davis, like Miriam Kava, like Ruth Wilson um, Gilmore. So a lot of the work was really done already and we had to compile it and talk through what made sense to include a cut. Um, and then since then, we've gotten a lot of feedback on how to improve the resource and to build in a stronger disability justice lens, for example, um, adding in the pieces around like nursing homes and psychiatric institutions, and also um, to make the platform available in several different languages so that the information itself is accessible. I really loved like seeing the language translations that have come out of eight to um, like eight to abolition, like thinking about accessibility and the ways that people have taken really a lot of time to lovingly like craft um, the language in order to circulate these graphics to people in their own communities, to their families, etc. And to really think about right like language justice as a kind of as a component of things that we want to invest in when we talk about investing in care. Too. So I think that's been a really exciting component in seeing um, like that being added as well as people taking the time to also help us with image descriptions of these different translations too. I love Agreed. that it's all, <laughs> yes. I love that it's like, it really is all about um, the mind shift change. You know, like we have to do the work to uh, abolish the police in our minds and the prisons in our minds and also like, the 
colonialist perspective that like English is the language we should all be using or whatever the hell it is you know like there's a lot of unlearning and relearning that y'all like packed into such a small uh project which is or not small in scope but obviously like compact in that way yeah so as you guys mentioned like the impetus for the project was this like eight can't wait plan um and uh a lot of people were reposting it from deray mckesson to julian castro and i was wondering i felt like this might be a good time to actually talk about what the eight can't wait campaign was and like why it's so so deeply insufficient yeah so there's a lot um (laughs) So DeRay is, (laughs) um, DeRay was actually involved in its creation as someone involved like in Campaign Zero. Um, Mm. And he and some other folks who have since either like separated themselves from 8 Can't Wait or separated themselves completely from Campaign Zero um, put this out and it was eight reforms and these are reformist reforms we're talking about the idea is that the police system remains we just fix it um and so these eight reforms were meant to reduce police violence by 72 percent and the first things first we were like 72 percent is not a hundred right and we have like a pretty clear avenue to getting to zero deaths which is zero police so (laughs) The first thing there was that we just didn't think it went far enough and that it's not fair to people who are targeted by police and police violence in the prison industrial complex to shoot for not 100% safety and not zero deaths. So that was the first thing I felt was insufficient, but you also have like critical resistance has this great chart that's um, I think loosely based on Miriam Kaba's article from a while back that talks about um, reforms you should always um, say no to. And it lists all these different things that often like put more money into the hands of police. And using that resource, you can literally go through the eight can't wait and see how all of them fall into the category of the reforms that you should not support. And what's funny is that now they've linked to that on their website. Oh my God. And I'm like, do you, did you read it? Did you read this? The answer is no. Also, yeah, to plug yeah. our reading group, that will be coming up in a couple of weeks, that particular <laughs> article, so everyone should come join us. <laughs> What's also been so dangerous about the Eight Can't Wait campaign is that how quickly different police departments are like, yes, mm. like, we're already do- doing it. It's a- and then, like, or, like, we're going to implement these right away, right? right? And so, like, the kind of readiness and quickness, like, that is, like, already in and of itself, like, the- a huge red flag, right? Like, you have cities <laughs> like Oakland, San Jose, Oklahoma City, like, all of these places are, like, check, 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 like, we can't wait to, like, invest, like, more in training and technology, mm-hmm. Um And we know that better training and like better, like quote unquote, like more technology is not like what we need, right? Like what we need is no more police. So, and I think kind of going back to the conversation too that Leila and Reyna were bringing up, it is like kind of, again, like rethinking that punishment is not an answer to harm, Mm -hmm. right? And so 
like we're not trying to reform police because we're really trying to like think bigger picture to be like how are we thinking about addressing harm and producing accountability without like only thinking about punitive measures absolutely right. and the only thing i want to add to that is um you know that a lot of cities had already implemented the mm. measures right. that had been put forward by the eight can't wait campaign like here in new york um, even before Eric Garner was killed by police, mm -hmm. um, chokeholds had been banned. So right. we know from the data that um, you know these policies haven't really made a dent in addressing police brutality, and that the number of police or people killed by police each year has been fairly constant. Roughly a thousand people are killed each year by police. Black people are three times as likely to be killed as white people. Um, and actually, there was an article yesterday that showed that in New York, there's a, a never released report um, that showed that um, actually uh, in New York, uh, like the number of people killed by police is twice as high as has been reported. Mm. Um, and that black people are five times as likely to be killed um, by white people. But a lot of the data just wasn't getting over to the health department. And then when a new commissioner um, came in, he was just not interested in continuing to collect the data. And so the report was never released. And, and now finally we have this article with this information. But um, all to say, you know, we already know it wasn't working. Those reforms <laughs> haven't been helpful um, and instead, and this is, I think, how we handle like all abusers. We have to constrain their ability to um, continue to cause harm and to right. terrorize our communities. We can't just trust them to do better. Uh, that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It's like shocking if you look at what some of the um, the, the reforms, I mean, obviously there, some of them don't even, it doesn't even seem like a reform. It's like, uh, you have to, uh, police would, you know, they institute a policy where police have to announce that they're going to shoot before shooting. Like, what difference does it make if there's still a shot fired in the end, exactly as it was going to be before? Um, it's like better data collection on police, like brutality, perhaps, but not changing the underlying fact of police brutality to begin with. Um, it's the kind of thing where like, if you take more than 30 seconds to think about any of the individual eight things that they propose, you recognize that like this is actually accomplishing nothing other than like making people feel okay about the existence of police again. Like that they can literally wipe what's happening yeah. from their minds. Yeah. And I, I also, so I just did a training to become a legal observer. So essentially it's, it's people who go out when there are demonstrations and observe the police and like see what kind of artillery they have and all of the things. If there are people on roofs, like who's doing what. And essentially um, the point I was going to say is I learned that it is uh, cops have to announce one time before they make mass arrests. And they we learned in the training that they can like whisper it. Like... Any of these things that it's like, you have to say something. You have to realize we're still fucking dealing with cops. So cops are, like, absolutely white supremacist, homophobic, transphobic, uh, misogynistic pieces of shit and are an extension of state violence or are carrying out state violence. And they're going to not, like, even if it's a rule to, that they need to say that they are going to make mass arrests, 
they can literally whisper it. So it's just, it's just. And they also, lie about they, everything anyway. Yeah. Right. And also like <laughs> murder is illegal. Right. Still. <laughs> so I don't know how like saying you're going to murder someone before you do it changes. Right. Like rules clearly don't matter to them. Right. Yeah. So I don't know why people are like, no, 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 no. We just tell them not to do that. And then we they just won't. make more rules. And it's like, no. Also, like, like, do you live in the same place as we do? <laughs> It's funny. I mean, it's not funny because it's real, but like it it also reminds me of the thing that Joe Biden came out, you know, to say to distance himself from Trump and he was like, you know, shoot them in the leg. Shoot him in the leg. I think that that protesters shouldn't shouldn't be shot. They should just be shot in the leg. Like that's what I would tell police to do differently. And like we're living in a world where our like the the political system that we have wants us to look at those two things as like our only options. Like it truly is like this larger metaphor where it's like okay, we either shoot we shoot people or we shoot them in the leg specifically. And that's what the the eight can't wait felt like is mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. example of the sort of mainstream political discourse putting forward a false choice that really isn't materially different from the world that we live in right now. And I think one of the incredible things about the campaign that y'all have been working on is that it really reinforces the idea that those aren't our only options. Like we don't have to settle for being shot in the leg. Like what if we didn't get shot at all? What if police didn't not only didn't shoot us, but didn't exist? Like those are actual possibilities. And I think it's so important that like this has become, you know, that the the eight to abolition campaign is getting mainstream attention because it really is like getting people to broaden their horizons of what they think is possible in such an incredible way. And circling back to Joe Biden, he literally like <laughs> prop- I'm sorry, I no, like please. I'm a no, huge, we're here for we it. Hate him. Huge Joe Biden hater. Um <laughs> <laughs> he wants us to give 300 million more dollars to the police for reforms yeah. or something. Like Unreal. it's just like uh, I don't know like who is on his team, like who what is going on over there, but it's embarrassing and it just shows how out of touch Democrats are with like what people actually want and it's like absolutely exhausting to watch neolibs like jack off to him yeah Mm -hmm. when we're like in this moment when we actually have the capacity to make change and people are like oh yeah just vote for Joe Biden and I'm like uh that's not what I meant yeah little reminder that Bernie Sanders put out a plan and one of the things that was included in that by the way just for all the Bernie stands out there was also like, what if we paid police more so that we could oh attract my better God. people to be police? Yeah, big yikes. Yeah. Big brain energy right and there. So anyway, it's very important. We don't have, like, let Bernie Sanders off the hook for being Bernie Sanders. No, he's part he of was a too. compromise. Like, I yeah. think people don't understand that it was like, like someone who sucked less was a good option at the time. <laughs> but it's like, he wasn't calling for the things we really needed. It's just exactly. like, I would like to have health care while I'm trying to overthrow the yes. United States. Like exactly. That nice. exactly. And I also want to remind people that like all of the militarized police gear really ramped up under Obama and Ferguson era. So like we also like any oh, people who are like, I don't know. I think I think obviously libs like make this about Trump and and we all on this call know that it is not about Trump and that it's about the deep history of the United States, which I do want to get into now. Um, 
So let's talk about scope. The United States has like two or three percent of the world's population, but a quarter or 25 percent of all incarcerated people, um, which is 2.3 million people as of March 2020. Um can we dive into why the United States has the carceral state so embedded into our society and why it's so hard for people to imagine it not existing, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, something I wanted to say earlier about, like, why the rules don't work is, you know, or, or like reforms that add rules to police departments um, is that it pretends that police violence is happening in a vacuum when we know that it's part of this larger context of, you know, high rates of poverty, high rates of, um, of, uh, of homelessness, um, and even interpersonal violence. So, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons that um, the US is, is deeply invested in the in the carceral state. But I think one of the big ones um, is, you know, the anti violence movement, the movement against gendered violence, the movement against hate violence. Um, you know, back before, like in the early 1970s, grassroots movements for gendered violence um, had been focused more on like peers supporting each other, and then later on became more professionalized into nonprofit structures where there was more of a divide between service providers and people receiving support. Um, and then later on, that was further institutionalized with the Violence Against Women Act, um, which was paired with the crime bill in the 90s that brought funding to these nonprofits that was contingent on their partnering with law enforcement. So over the course of that time period, you saw mostly nonprofits focusing on white survivors um, and completely erasing the fact of gendered violence by state actors, um, which, you know, is an enormous problem in communities of color. We, we constantly like sexual assault is the second most common form of police brutality. Um, and that doesn't even include all of the police and uh, police practices like strip and cavity searches that are sexual violence in themselves. Mm. Um, and, and also, you know, and survived and punished has done a really great job uplifting this. Uh, like so many people who, especially black women, black trans folks who have defended themselves against gendered violence um, are then criminalized for doing so. So um, they're not seen as survivors. They're not seen, as, they're, they're seen as the aggressors and then further incarcerated. So we've seen a, a, like an increased rate of survivors who are being incarcerated. I also wanna say that uh, sexual violence is one of the lowest rates of incarceration for like people who perpetrate sexual violence are the like one, it's one of the least likely things to actually get indicted for or like to actually have that like be confirmed by a judge and jury uh so it's it's i feel like sexual violence is such a complicated thing because i also hear people you know when we think about abolition being like well what are we going to do with with um sexual violence offenders and it's like yes good question but there are other options and already people don't believe women or people who experience sexual violence when it happens to them so there needs to be like a much larger societal shift there too yeah also cops are way more likely to be sexual abusers yes. than to like quote unquote punish a sexual yeah, a sexual exactly. abuser literally 
Right. Like 20 to 40 percent of police officers have used intimate partner violence. Um, and that's like the, yeah. probably the modest or conservative estimate. And when black women and women of color report, they're discouraged. They're not believed. They're not seen as credible. So the people who are most likely to experience gendered violence already don't see policing or prisons as a response. Um, I love the way that Miriam Kaba reframes the question because she asks, what are we doing with the rapists now? You know, we have a rapist as president and a rapist running against running. Them, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and like, like a few story. sprinkled racists in the Supreme Court. Which is just a reminder that we have to continue to build a culture that, you know, won't tolerate rape, abuse, gendered violence, and that supports survivors. Yeah, absolutely. I I would also like to say that like from like a um, societal cultural standpoint, there's been a long-standing American mythology that uh, has happened since chattel slavery um, of particularly this idea that black men are predatory to white women. Um, and, you know, we there was the film, um, Callan, do you remember it? Uh, I know what you're talking about. I don't about. know what it's, it's It about. was like screened at the White House. Oh, 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 Birth of a Nation. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry, I just couldn't remember. So Birth, no, of, a no, Nation, Birth of a Nation um, was screened at the White House at the time. It literally glorifies the KKK as heroes. And the main plot line is that there's a black man uh, who's like preying on a white woman and she throws herself off a cliff rather than face violence with him. And literally, similarly to how on our Satanism episode we talked about like how satanic panic was literally a response to Catholic priests like covering up the fact that they were literally um abusing young boys um this was a specific perversion of uh slave holding white men um raping black enslaved people um particularly black enslaved women um, and so this is not a new thing. This is a longstanding lineage, but culturally, you know, the, the embedded thing in society is you still see white women, um, showing fear at like, quote unquote, like certain areas of, of cities or whatever the fuck, uh, ridiculous shit people are saying. Um, but that stuff is really, really woven into the fabric of our society. Can I also just add that the president who um, showed Birth of a Nation at the White House was Woodrow Wilson. And there was a, a tweet that I saw earlier today, I think, that was like, um, you know, if if the left is going to go after like Confederate icons and stuff, then we should go after their like their presidents and their monuments like Lincoln, Wilson, etc. Okay. And I was like, bitch, you can have Woodrow Wilson. You can have Lincoln to too, to be Woodrow honest. Wilson statue, I'll be out there helping you out. Who do you think this is? No good so. presidents. What are we talking about? Right. Anyway, I just was like, really like, like, I mean, I can understand being like, oh yes, the left will cry if we take down a, a, a Lincoln statue, which like, no, we wouldn't. But like, <laughs> seriously, which Woodrow Wilson, um, just a bit of levity to share with you all today. I saw that. I think it was Dinesh D'Souza and everybody was like retweeting it being like, please. Can we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so what I was going to add, though, was, you know, a lot of people don't know that whole narrative um, about like 
black men preying on white women, that is exactly how the anti-trafficking movement started. Um, one of the first anti-trafficking laws in this country was the Mann Act in 1905, also referred to as the White Slave Traffic Act. Um, and it just criminalized interracial relationships. And that you, you continue to see that legacy in, right. um, in like organizations like Polaris, formerly known as Polaris Project, named after the North Star that guided, you know, people who had been enslaved to freedom. Other, other anti-trafficking organizations use similar language around modern day slavery. And like, there's one organization I think called the Underground Railroad. And it is so ironic and shameful because these are like all white organizations and they're doing nothing to support trafficking survivors and yet um you know receive massive amounts of federal funding and private funding to um essentially you know attack sex workers and further criminalize people who are engaged in the sex trade whether by choice circumstance or coercion so it's another way that we have gotten deeply embedded into the carceral state Again, it's these anti-violence organizations that are supposedly supposed to be making us safer, and yet um, they're doing nothing for us. And I think the kind of bigger question that, like, we're really like thinking through, right, is that the ways that the current laws are structured and being enforced, right, like, do not protect everyone, do not serve everyone. And so, like, the big questions is, like, what are we enforcing? Like, who has to give up their safety so some people can feel, like, slightly more secure, right? And, like, the ways that all that policing is really about enforcing, like, people categorized as, quote-unquote, like, undesirable in society um, and punishing them, right? Um, and so, so that's just, like, a kind of bigger picture thing that I think this conversation is, like, really pushing me to think about as well. Yeah, um, there is a great quote by Sophia Bukhari, um, who, she, you know, and she said, who has the power um, decides what is a crime. Um, and it's essentially like, yeah, like, people are, it's, it's people's everyday activities, people's survival that is criminalized. Um, and it's, it's rooted in anti-blackness and, and racism and like seeking to uphold white supremacists as heteropatriarchal oppression. Um, like that's, yeah, that like, that's the function of the state. Yeah. So speaking of libs, <laughs> speaking of libs, uh, I mean, that's not exactly what you were just talking about, but I feel like we've been talking about this throughout the whole thing. Um, I definitely, uh, you know, spend a lot of time on Twitter like we all do. Uh, I heard someone say that if if people ask what a world would look like with defunded police, um, that they responded it looks like the suburbs or rural spaces. Um, I, I have, you know, my own feelings about that, but how do y'all feel about that? Um, I get this sentiment, but maybe like, why doesn't it go far enough or why isn't it quite the right analogy? Yeah, I think this is something that we've discussed ourselves and it's, it's hard because I think that it is a good way to kind of like conceptualize a place without police for people who may have like zero knowledge about abolition. But at the same time, when you think about those places that are wealthy, are primarily white, have really good schools, have like high cost of living and all of these things, no food deserts, 
they're also the number one place that if they like see a black or brown person just like minding their own business walking around will call the cops right um so i think that it's it's a cool analogy to use to like let people imagine maybe that there are different Mm -hmm. possibilities when a community actually has money going towards things like schools, things like health Other things. Um, right. <laughs> but I think that yeah. we, we have to think about it in the way that those communities are also like rich in the way that they are because of racism, because of capitalism. And so I think we, we can use it to a degree, but I wouldn't say like end all be all the suburbs are like what we're trying to be like. Yeah, absolutely. I I would also add in like a similar vein that, you know, if you think about the role from sort of a theoretical perspective that policing plays in a capitalist system, like we have unequal resource distribution and we have basically we need to not have full employment for the, the economy to function the way that it does. So you're going to have a group of people that are like the excess population under capitalism and something needs to be done with the, that group of people. And so one of the main functions of the carceral system is to criminalize that population and sort of keep it out of the the eye of the people for whom capitalism is largely working. Um, And obviously that is like a deeply unjust thing that should not be happening. But under capitalism, that is part of the function of police is, is to do that. And so if you think about what those suburbs, like how they exist under capitalism, it's partly because policing exists in the first place. Like, it's not that that's a world without police. It's a world without visible policing. It's a world where the people who live there aren't policed, but the people who don't live there have to be policed to keep that system Mm -hmm. functional. Um, And so that's another issue from like a structural level for why that sort of saying really grinds my gears. But at the same time, it is possible for people to live, you know, near one another and not like be not need to have a policeman to protect them from the person next door or what have you. Also, let's not fucking forget that the invention of the suburb was because of white flight. Yes. (laughs) Just, just as a, just as another thing, like, you know, there were always rural spaces, of course, but this kind of like in between space came because white people were like, Oh, I guess like if a, a, I don't want to be in this space because I'm a white supremacist. Um, And I think there's so much of also, and I think Miriam Kaba talks about this, how security and safety aren't the same things, right? And the mm -hmm. things in the suburbs that make people feel secure, like aren't necessarily about like community safety, right? And like how you all just pointed out that particular bodies, like particularly black and brown and poor bodies, like can't exist safely in the suburbs like currently, right? And that right. like the removal of those peoples is what makes people feel as if they're more secure. Yeah, Absolutely. that's such a good point. And I grew up in the suburbs and it was like not a good time. Mm. Like, <laughs> like everyone was racist. We were the only brown people in my neighborhood. It I mean, we were also poor, so that like added to things, but it, it you we weren't safe. We were not feeling good, but the we made people feel insecure because they were afraid of us. When in reality, like it was us who should have been afraid. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we're nearing the end of our time together. This flew by, obviously. Um, So I thought we could end on pieces of what a future without police and prisons could look like. Um, And I know we've covered some of this already. I have like an incomplete list of things that I am looking forward to seeing happen with the abolition of police and prisons. And like, of course, please add to it. Um, But, uh, you know, complete drug use decriminalization, free rehabilitation services, universal health care, rigorous food justice. So I think it was, um, I think it was... Layla, who said uh, food deserts, like suburbs don't have food deserts. I apologize if I I got that wrong. But, um, and I think it's important that people know that, like, this is a huge issue, um, that food is not accessible to everyone in the United States. And we have, like, some of the highest rates of uh, child hunger and malnutrition. Um, uh, Decriminalization of sex work. And the abolition of ICE and Homeland Security, again, understanding borders as fluid and constructed narratives based on xenophobia, colonialism, and more recently, globalized capitalism, Um, federal jobs guarantee, and actual living wage programs. We're going to be talking about that more next week with a professor who's, like, dedicated uh, her life to studying what federal jobs guarantee programs could look like um, under modern modern monetary theory. Um, And then... You know, I would love to see reparations as well uh, for both um, black people, just like people who experience all of the the trauma that it is to be a black person in America, as well as for indigenous folks who have had their lands completely stolen from them, as well as, you know, mass genocide. Um, so, you know all of it. Uh, but that's, that's obviously not an inclusive list, but I wanted to like talk about some of the things that we can use the money for that are currently being, uh, given to police and prisons. Yeah. I mean, off the bat, I would also add, um, in addition to like, I think this goes partially hand in hand with a lot of these things, especially, um, like drug decriminalization is, um, a stronger network of mental health care and like access to mental health care. Yeah, definitely. And we want to make sure that like this new system in which people have access to mental health care is not coercive care, because I think a lot of people um, think about having access to like psychological services as having more institutions, when in reality, we want to make it something that's like actually affirming and a caring environment. And it's not something that folks are coerced into doing because that's another form of incarceration. Yes. Yes. And um, the other thing I'll add that I think is is crucial is just universal housing. Everybody needs Mm. access to housing. Housing is healthcare. Housing is safety from violence. Um, And it's just, yeah, I mean, you don't like even having access to a restroom for like is a is such a privilege right now because so many people don't have access. So housing. And circling back to what uh, Raina was just saying about affirming healthcare, like we just as a reminder, we live in a society where, um, you know, people, doctors, healthcare providers are legally allowed to discriminate against people based on um, gender identity and sexuality. And like, that is extremely problematic. So when we say, uh, access to these services and universal healthcare, it needs to come with, um, 
of course, the the anti-discrimination things that need to go along with that as well. And adding on to like reparations, I think that it's so important for us to do that. But I like, we have to give all the land back to indigenous folks. Like, I think that that is like one of the number one ways that the United States, I mean, like in this world, I've abolished it. So um, (laughs) like, that's like the best way for us to get as far back to how it was meant to be. And then indigenous folks can decide who gets to stay or not. Like we, it's not our choice. And I think that like a lot of the futures we envision are often like these like settlers or arrivants trying to structure this new United States. When in reality, like the US never should have existed. And justice is never going to be like gotten for indigenous and native people if they don't have sovereignty over their land and decision-making over that land, because it's not going to be like random white people who decide what the new world is going to look like in North America or Turtle Island. Like it's not, it's not for us. Not that I'm white, but like we're not the people who are choosing that and shouldn't be. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I also, I want to come back to, sorry, there was a, (laughs) I want to come back to what you were saying, Laura, about like um, protections against discrimination, because I think that's like ongoing work that we have to do. Um, Like even with the, you know, Supreme Court win last week that said that like trans folks can't be discriminated against. I think we have to remember that um, that probably will only apply to some trans folks in particular white, more um, privileged trans folks. Black trans folks are still going to experience high rates of discrimination and that's like even if we abolish prisons tomorrow we still have ongoing cultural work to do um to root out rape culture racism transphobia um and on all of these systems of oppression from our communities absolutely we are at time uh does anyone have anything else that they'd like to share before we say goodbye for now Maybe I would just close with, I'm so invigorated by hearing all of these features that are being imagined. And to really close with the idea of like that abolition is a world building project, mm-hmm. right? And that like hearing all of this, it is about like, how are we opening up our imaginations of a world outside of capitalism, outside of imperialism and outside of white supremacy, rather than kind of like being limited by the ways that the systems are structured and trying to operate within those to make changes. And I think all of the offerings on the table are also what's so exciting about them is so tangible, right? Like why can't we have free and accessible public transportation, Mm -hmm. like safe and accessible housing now, right? And like what's stopping us from having those things. And I think um, like hearing all of that is hopefully, I think going to get people really energized about the world that like we can build, like begin building together. Yes, I love ending on that note. Yeah, I mean, Angela Davis says it best when she's like, people didn't think slavery would end. People didn't think uh, segregation would end. People didn't think that lynching would end. And yet, you know, here we are. But people literally in that time could not imagine that. So we need to do the work of imagining it. So very, very well said, Rachel. Well, thank you all so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This was so nice. You all are so brilliant. And we'll obviously link to your work in in the description. Thank you. Yay. 
Well, that was awesome. They're all so brilliant and amazing. I really loved, I really loved that conversation and thinking about better worlds with you all. Um, or a better world, different visions for better, a better world. Um, but yeah, so as mentioned in the beginning, we have a reading group that's starting on abolition and anti-racism, um, Sunday evenings at 7 PM is run through our Patreon. So if you're already on our Patreon, you have the information. If you're not, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch and you'll get all the information. Yup. You can also, oh, and we just started a Discord channel that also is run through our Patreon, and it's been super fun. You can chat with us, and you can chat with other um, listeners, and yeah, we have fun there. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Season of the Bee. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, and you can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com, and yes. that's all the things, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I love you all. Love you. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.